0: We'll be in Acts chapter 1 today, and once you turn there, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And I'll be reading up until verse 14. The first account of Theophilus I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over forty days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you were restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven." Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one accord, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Well, church, we've finally done it. We've made it through Luke, and we are officially into the gospel, into not the gospel of Acts, the book of Acts. So used to saying the gospel of Luke every Sunday. Um, So we're in the book of Acts, and we will be here for however long it takes us to do diligence to the text, and to get its main themes uh, not just out and in front of us, but also as best as we can to apply its themes to our, our lives. Uh, that'll probably take us a little bit of time. So as we buckle in for that journey, uh, it's, it's useful for us to uh, take some time, especially in these introductory chapters, to remind ourselves not just of major themes, but uh, just as any book is written, the, the early parts of the book will tell us what to anticipate for the whole of the book. It's pretty common today if you were to pick up a book uh, from from a library or from a bookstore. uh, If you flip through the first couple of pages, you won't find page one, chapter one. Uh, You'll first find a table of contents, which kind of tells you what to expect later in the book, titles of chapters and things like that. And also usually uh, a prelude or an introduction, sometimes a lengthy introduction. All of that is aimed at telling you what to expect in this volume, in this this work. And the book of Acts is no different. whole of the first chapter, really these first 14 verses, uh, begin to tell us, at least as a frame, what we're going to see happening in the rest of the book of Acts. So for instance, uh, the particular verse I have in mind here when I think about this uh, is when Jesus speaks to them uh, to answer their question that they asked him, and he says, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. That's what we would call foreshadowing because by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, the book tries to make clear that Paul has actually headed outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, outside of Jemaria, outside of Samaria. Now he's headed to Rome, the central hub of the Gentile peoples, to be a witness for Christ. And so what the book is doing is it's telling us what's going to happen, and then it's going to explain to us in historical narrative how it actually takes place. And so as we, as we dwell on these first 14 verses, that's kind of the thing we're, we're, we have in view. And we might say that in these verses, Jesus gives to the church their marching orders. He gives to the church what they ought to do, who they ought to be, and how they ought to be as they go forth into the world. But it's not all just about that, uh, uh, accomplishing this mission to the ends of the earth. There's also some obscure details like uh, a question that's asked about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel uh, and then... This this comment about the angels, about Jesus going to heaven, and he'll come back that same way. And so we'll look at that too as we work through the text. But by way of reminder, uh, those first three verses uh, we we covered at least in brief last week. And so I'll just call to your mind uh, by just looking at a few pieces of those verses to just to show you what we what we talked about. So the first book, remember, is a reference to Luke, the one we just finished. Uh, it's also addressed to Theophilus who Luke is also written to. Uh, And Luke, in the writing of the book of Acts, uh, is telling us not what Jesus began to do and to teach, which is what he was writing about in Luke. Uh, What he's doing now is he's, we might say, telling us what Jesus is still continuing to do and to teach. So what Jesus first began to do and to teach is covered in the gospel of Luke. What he continues then to do and to teach, uh, probably present day to Theophilus, is covered in the book of Acts. That has some theological implication that we'll get into in these early verses, and Jesus, uh, Jesus is continuing to do this and to teach this until he's taken up. The very first thing that happens, let's say event-wise in the book of Acts, is Jesus ascends to heaven. That's covered in our section, and so the natural question that any follower of Christ would have is now what? Now that our our follower is uh, now that our teacher is gone, uh, who do we follow? Or if we continue to follow this teacher, how do we continue? to follow him? Is it by looking back at his legacy, by looking forward at his vision? How do we we follow this leader? And so that's a question that remains open. But then the the key piece uh, that we ought to pay attention to is that he gave specific commands before he left, particularly to his apostles through the Holy Spirit. And in verse three, and he didn't just give them instructions to follow, He also presented himself alive to them after his period of suffering. And by many proofs, he appeared to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And that, of course, speaks not only to the mission of the church, something that is alluded to later in the being witnesses to the ends of the earth, but also this alludes to, well, what are they witnessing to? They're witnessing to Jesus, most notably Jesus's kingdom. Uh, That's a theme that's developed heavily in the Gospel of Luke, something we've seen before, Um, but the kingdom of heaven is upon the earth by Christ's power and is now going forward through the witnessing and teaching of the apostles. And this is a sure thing because of the proof of the resurrection. And so this is something we need to at least start with, uh, let's say as as a note of order. In order for the marching orders that Jesus gives the church to make any sense at all, Jesus really needs to have resurrected from the grave and been a true teacher. This is a point that I've labored heavily to try to show you in the Gospel of Luke. Um, there There is no kind of Christianity that makes sense with Jesus as a moral teacher only who leaves his disciples afterwards with ethical instructions and communal life to follow. The resurrection is central to the teaching of the church, And it's central to Christianity at large. And Luke doesn't let us get away from this because he tells us that this whole mission that is entrusted through the Holy Spirit to the apostles is done in verse 3 through the proof of the resurrection in which he appears to them after his suffering. So the fact that Jesus suffered and died is not enough to establish any kind of credible witness about what Jesus taught. There are many people who have died for things they believed. Many people throughout history who have died for things they confessed to be true. That does not make that what they said true. The unique claim of Jesus, of course, is that he doesn't just die for things that he believes, but he's actually vindicated in his death by resurrection. Because as he claimed to be sinless, God resurrected him by the power of the Holy Spirit to show that he was indeed sinless. And of course, this is difficult to reconcile for the Pharisees, and it's a central contention in the book of Acts, which is that only God can resurrect the dead. It's kind of a central belief of the Jewish thought life. And so if that's true and God resurrected Jesus, that means Jesus was sent by God as a messenger of God. And so things that Jesus claimed to be true, which were uh, confirmed by other signs, like the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, the healing of many persons, is sealed in its fullest and finest form, by his resurrection, which is an irrefutable proof of the truthfulness of Jesus' claims. You do away with the resurrection, you also do away with the credibility not only of Jesus, but also of all those who claimed, without really blinking an eye, that Jesus indeed is resurrected from the dead. The reason I say that, and I've said that for the last several weeks, one is because the text will not let us forget that. And so if we're going to stick close to the text of Luke and of Acts, Uh, The resurrection is never far away. As you'll see in all of the major sermons, the resurrection is a central point of dispute. And so we can't get away from that as readers either. This has to be part of the forefront of what we believe. But also, I say that because I know in our culture in particular, in the West, and particularly in the educated West, of which many of you live in that kind of a context, the supernatural, particularly the resurrection of a Savior, is the kind of thing that will get you laughed at. Much like I mentioned several weeks ago, the virgin birth is the kind of thing that will get you laughed at. But the resurrection is not something we can say, well, let's put that to the side for now and think about what about the ethical teaching of Jesus. We, you just can't approach evangelism or witnessing like that. And the apostles don't do that. And so we should learn, I think, from their example and even from Luke's example. Right? Imagine being a skeptic or being Theophilus and you're the, you're the person who needs to be assured of the faith that you believe. And rather than Luke easing you into hard truths, hard to day truths, like a dead man resurrected, Theophilus says, hey, by the way, in the first book I wrote about this Jesus guy, in the second book I'm going to tell you how not only did he resurrect, but also he did all these other things. But he's not really easing Theophilus into an argument for the resurrection. He's just kind of taking it as something he believes to be true. And so that, that at least tells us something that as Christians... We ought to believe in the resurrection, not as a tangential part of faith, but as a central aspect to what we can all agree upon together. And for Christians today, uh, there might be many points of dispute, many points of secondary disagreement uh, that we might have spirited conversation and debate about, but the resurrection is not one of those secondary areas of dispute or debate. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is this central thing that is core to Christianity. To depart from that is to depart from faith. Luke seems to think that that's the case, obviously, just by volume of emphasis, both in his gospel and now in his writings in Acts. And that's all recap from last week. And so as we get into the text this week, we have to think about, at least conceptually, what does it imply that Jesus resurrected and then left? And in leaving, what did he leave us behind with? And I say us, at least initially, we can't ask that question. We have to ask first, what did he leave the apostles behind with? And then we can get to what does this mean for for us. So verse 4 of Acts, chapter 1. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here Jesus is saying to his disciples, you have to wait for the promise of the Father, that promise being this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is early on in the Gospel of Luke, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which John actually uses as a distinguishing factor between him and Christ. He says that he is not the Messiah, he's not Elijah, he's not Moses, he is just John, and he baptizes only with water. That's all he can do. He can point, but he is not this salvific figure, rather, Jesus, the Christ, can do something more than baptize just with water. He can baptize with the Holy Spirit. And as John the Baptist says, the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is a, a promised word. So there's at least two things we have to ask as good readers. Um, why does everyone seem to think this is a promise? And where do they get this idea from? So we'll, we'll talk about it when we're in Acts chapter 2 more in depth. But the expectation of an outpouring of the Spirit of God onto the people of God is an expectation for the latter days. In all of these minor prophet Old Testament writings, there's this expectation of not only a messiah, but a messianic reign, which is marked by, in part, the Spirit of God pouring out across the world as a, as a knowledge revelatory kind of thing. And so when, when Jesus says to his disciples, this, this promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit will be poured out to you not many days from now, He's, he's telling them, hey, this huge end times event, the Holy Spirit being active in the world in a way never seen before, is something which is, which is happening shortly, which is happening soon. And that carries with it lots of significance, like, well, if the end times event of the Holy Spirit baptism is upon the world, or soon to be upon the world, um, what does that mean for people living in the end times, if, if you like to think about it that way, in these last days when the Holy Spirit is poured out? And what does it mean for the last days to be ongoing now for about 2,000 years and and counting? I think it's a a fair question, a good question for us to ask as as students of the text. But simply to point out, the reason the apostles can expect this, the reason Jesus can tell them, here is something that you're assured of, is because it's promised in the Old Testament for them to expect and to be assured of. And at least for for our application today, we can know with certainty, in part, the character of God by his previous fulfillment of promises. So for instance, you might have something you want God to accomplish in your life. For instance, a victory over X sin that you've struggled with, or freedom from anxiety finally, or something that has just gripped you or maybe a family member of yours for some period of time. And you, and you can ask the question, will what God has promised rest for his people, comfort in affliction, freedom from sin, power over forces of darkness, will that be realized for me in my life, in my circumstance? It's a fair question. And one of the ways in which we gain confidence that that is a true thing that God will in fact do is by seeing how faithful he has been to his people in the past. So in this text, uh, Jesus is saying to his apostles, this promise is still future for them not many days from now a promise that's been standing now for hundreds of years. And if you were just to flip over a couple of pages in your Bible, you'll see that promise does in fact take place. That promise is fulfilled to them. Much like the promise that Jesus will not just die but also resurrect was fulfilled to them. And so if you wanna know the character of God and how faithful he is to his word and to his promises, just take a sampling of any number of promises that he's given to his people And how the text, when you look at it in totality, pains itself to show you how faithful he is to his promises. Is God faithful to his promise to Abraham? Paul spends all of Galatians trying to show that that is in fact the case. Is is God faithful to his promise to resurrect Christ from the grave? Luke makes it plain that God was indeed faithful to do just that. Will God be faithful to you in your circumstance, in your situation, for what you struggle with? Well, you can reason from what you have seen God do how he will behave in the future as well because he loves to reveal his character to us. So his character being revealed as a God of faithfulness, uh, four years of doubt, five years of doubt, six months of doubt, a week of doubt in hardship should not thwart the thousand-year reigning character of God as revealed to us in the text of Scripture. I say that not to shame you if you do struggle with doubting God's faithfulness, to encourage you. Because God is faithful, and I need to be reminded of that just as you need to be reminded of that often. And often we need to be reminded of it uh, after we've heard it for the umpteenth time, and then again, yes, indeed, God is faithful. And look at it, look how faithful he is in his word. So this promise of the Father is realized, it will be realized not many days from then, but they are in the meantime told to wait. And so, uh, while while they're just told to wait, they have a question, uh, and their question is found in verse 6. They all together come and say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? If you're a student of scripture, this question, uh, or if you've read any commentaries on Acts, everyone has an opinion on this particular question. Is it a good question or is it a bad question? Is it a timely question? Is it a question that the disciples shouldn't be asking? Um, to give you uh, an example of maybe how context would shape this, imagine you're in, uh, you're a student in class and the professor uh, or the teacher is talking to the class, talking to the other students, and they keep talking about in the syllabus it says, in the syllabus it says, in the syllabus it says these things, right? You know, uh, there's this homework assignment due in a couple of weeks from now, the details are in the syllabus. And some student raises their hand in class and asks, um, where is that in the syllabus? Now that could be a good question or a bad question, depending on at least two factors. One, did that student themselves read the syllabus? Or two, did the professor put that in the syllabus? Or did they invent the idea that they put it in the syllabus? And you've probably been in situations where both of those things have been true. On the one hand, sometimes I've, I've been in classes where a professor or a teacher says, uh, the homework assignment and its details are, are in the syllabus. Uh, answers are in the back of the textbook. Good luck. And then no one asked in class because they were too embarrassed to ask about, what are you talking about? And then a week later, after much pain and and labor, everyone figured out this was nowhere in the syllabus. The professor had simply slipped their mind. So it could have been a good question in that kind of a context. And in another context, you have the student who didn't read the syllabus, hasn't bought their books for the class, showed up late to this class, and is now here and saying, where's that in the syllabus? Because they don't even know where to look because they haven't bothered to look. In that case, we would judge that as a bad question. So the question itself is informed by the context of the question. You might say, how does that bear on this? Well, verse uh, 6, the question that the apostles ask, we just simply don't have good context for if it's a good question or a bad question. Let me try to show that to you. So when, when he asks, or when they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? That could be a good question, depending on what they mean. For instance, if they mean by the kingdom being restored to Israel, the messianic kingdom, which includes the Gentile peoples in its thrust and sweep, it's a very good question, right? Because he's just told them that he's going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit. They might be connecting the dots and saying, that's like when the messianic kingdom comes, is that happening soon? So it could be a good question. It could also be a bad question, for instance, if they are taking with them some of the teaching of the Pharisees of that day, that the kingdom being restored to Israel means ethnic Israel to the exclusion of and the punishment of other people groups, that could be a, could be a bad question because it means they don't understand the sweep of the Old Testament prophets. It's just not really clear what they mean, and Jesus doesn't really respond overtly to their question. He gives them kind of a, a sideways answer. So we sh- I think we should reserve judgment on whether they ask a good question or a bad question. I think, it, I think honestly, the evidence could go either way. But uh, if you want a sure and definite opinion, uh, one commentator on the text, very, very learned commentator, John Calvin, says that there's almost as many errors in this question as there are words. So you could take that stance as well. Uh, I leave it up to you to be the judge. But I think the thing we should focus on, not whether it's a good question or a bad question, is what is Jesus's answer to this question? I think there's more information in the answer. And that's found in verse seven where he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, if we pause and reflect, Jesus, this is not the first time he said something like that. For instance, in, in uh, Luke 21, he says of the temple, it will be destroyed, and they say, when? And he says, no one knows the day or the hour. It's kind of the, the long and short of it. And so, uh, he's, he's often engaged with their good questions in this kind of way before, where he basically tells them, Uh, It's not necessary for you to know. So he says it's not necessary for them to know that the Father has fixed this, meaning the Father has already predestined this to take place. That's a theme that's going to come up throughout the book of Acts, God's sovereignty over events as they unfold. God has done this by his own authority. Uh, But, and here's the the kicker, the, the answer Jesus wants them to walk away with, is that it doesn't actually matter if they know when the kingdom comes, how it comes, Uh, in what uh, speed it comes to them. Rather, they are to follow their marching orders. That's in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and hear the marching orders, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. says that as an answer to a question they didn't quite ask. So they ask, when will the kingdom come? And he basically says, not important. Here's what you do in the meantime. Or maybe, uh, not important when the kingdom comes in its consummate glory. Here's what you do as the kingdom is working itself out over time. Either way, the answer is, is actually pretty simple. It doesn't matter when the end of the world comes, Christian. It doesn't matter what the end times look like. Honestly, we should probably stop watching the news and being so obsessed with that kind of thing. Rather we have these simple, plain, marching orders for the now and the immediate that are very relevant for our daily lives. Much more relevant than whether or not we can predict in what month in 2024 Christ will return. So, what are those marching orders? Well, simply put, uh, they are for the apostles that they are to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, you might say, I've heard that line a lot, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the earth. That's from this text in Acts. But actually this, like that promise in chapter 4, the promise of the Holy Spirit, is an Old Testament expectation. You might have this as a cross-reference in your Bible. Uh, You might not. But turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. And we'll be looking at the early verses. So verse 6 or so of the text. But as always, uh, since we're bouncing around now to Isaiah, uh, just to give you a brief context, Isaiah 44, roughly, through 55, or really Isaiah 40 to 55, is a series of texts that are called the Servant Songs in Isaiah. You've probably heard me say something like this before. It's good as a, a refresher. And the Servant Songs, generally, the Christian, Christian interpreters of this text believe Christ, being the Servant, is who these songs are prophesying about. So when it speaks of one who is to come to restore Israel, one who is to be afflicted on behalf of the people to restore them to righteousness with God, we believe that's speaking of Christ. And so I'm going I'm to assume that interpretation just for the sake of time. And in Isaiah 49, uh, you have the servant of the Lord uh, with a particular task and mission. So Isaiah 49, I'm going to start reading in verse 5. This is Yahweh speaking to his servant. Now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, this is Yahweh speaking to this servant, it is too light of thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So here, the servant receives this word from Yahweh. It's not enough for you to just redeem the people of Israel. Actually, this restoration sweeps up everyone, a light to the Gentiles as well, to the ends of the earth. Now, keep that in mind. You could keep your finger there. And then if you just glance back at the text in Acts, you'll realize Jesus just told his disciples, his apostles, that that's their job. Well, that's interesting. And here we begin to develop at least one major theme that I think will be present in the book of Acts throughout, which is that what Christ accomplishes through his body by the power of the Holy Spirit is counted also as what Christ accomplishes in himself, in his work. Another way to say that is, when we talk about Christ's person and work, we speak most often about what he accomplished in his earthly ministry, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But as I mentioned, the ascension is Christ in an ongoing active capacity, ministering to his people, ruling over his bride. And he does so actively such that he continues to work in the world through his people. And I think an evidence of that is the fact that the mission that Yahweh gives to the servant, the servant gives to the servant's body. To the servants' apostles. To give you another glance at this, um, if you'll turn to uh, Saul's uh, Damascus Road experience, this is in Acts chapter, uh, I believe, Acts chapter 9. You're going to see the same motif come a little bit from a different angle. I just want you to see it as a, as a prelude. So this is Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading from verse 4. So context, Paul is going to persecute the church. He's already put a bunch of Christians to death. He's helped stone them. He's helped organize all that. He goes to Damascus to kill more Christians. He gets struck by a blinding light, and then we pick up in the text, verse 4, chapter 9. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. What I want you to see there, in those brief verses, is when Jesus' people are persecuted, Jesus counts it as himself being persecuted. Saul is not accused of of persecuting Jesus' church, although that is technically accurate, that's what he's doing he's counted as persecuting Christ himself. Okay? So that's a different angle from the same idea. Here's the idea in its totality. As we are the body of Christ, his people, in part what we do is what he does, and what we suffer is what he suffers, and what he has endured is what we also endure. It's uh, this unity of Christ idea as kind of developed in the book of Acts, at least in part. Such that... Anything that God has promised to the servant is at least in part in view in the mission of the church. Now, what I'm not saying is that the church does what the servant does, in that it dies a penal substitutionary death on behalf of other people. But there are some aspects, certainly, of the servant's ongoing mission, such as reaching the world, that Christ did not accomplish in his earthly ministry, nor could he have, because he dies in Jerusalem ascends to the throne 40 days after he resurrects, and so he's he's never made it to India or to Ethiopia. He He never goes there. So can we conclude that Christ failed to accomplish something that he was assigned to accomplish by Yahweh, or as I think Acts points us to, that Christ accomplishes this by means of his people through the preaching of his word. Actually, later in the book of Acts, Paul points to that text from Isaiah 49 and applies it to his mission to the Gentiles as well, I think understanding the thrust of this this text. Okay, that's very biblical, theological, very high level for the apostles. Here's, let's see how that concretes to you as an individual Christian and us as a corporate body of believers. If Christ's mission is in part given to us, one of the things we need to recognize, especially in the West, is it's not given to You, as an individual in its totality, that is a crushing burden to carry for evangelism and missions. Your job as a Christian is not to witness to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the end of the earth. That is the burden of the church at large, of which you are a minor and very small part. Actually, us as a church, Ruah, is a minor and a very small part of God's ongoing mission in the world through his church. Your burden as a Christian is not to be a theologian, be a missionary, be a homeschool mom, be all of these things, and, and do it all because God has commanded you to do it as an individual. God has commanded his people to accomplish these things on his behalf through his Holy Spirit. So what you must ask as a Christian is not uh, some, some per- paralyzing burden of duty, and then how can I begin to accomplish this? No, no, no. What you have to ask is, what is my slice of responsibility to work towards the good of the whole. What is my burden in the body of Christ? For some, being faithful to the mission looks entirely different than for others. For instance, part of my faithfulness to the mission as a pastor is reading lots of books and sitting at a desk and writing. Part of your faithfulness as a Christian to the mission might mean something totally different, very unique to your particular job and responsibility. For instance, for Tim, part of what that means is crunching numbers and lots of data and being on meetings with people who don't live in the United States. If I was to try to accomplish that kind of thing as a faithfulness aspect, that is simply me stepping outside of my role into someone else's role and pretending like that's faithfulness. I say that as an extreme example, but often I think Christians, you might feel the burden to come and be a pastor to everyone who you've met in your life as though that's part of your burden. Your burden is not to read as many theology books as pastors do, or to be as learned of a theologian as the scholars are. Your job as a Christian is to think, what is my duty and responsibility for where God has placed me and called me? So you don't need to be an expert in all things theological, but perhaps you have someone whom you love and care for deeply that is struggling with one thing in particular, of which I think you ought to then become an expert, or at least learn it in, so you can converse and witness but it's not as your job to be an entire body of Christ in yourself, the complete package to everyone. That's a crushing burden, very, very much so. And I think it actually has the opposite effect of what many people intend for it to do, which is that it causes us to be inactive rather than active. In the same way that you've probably sat down before, you have a whole lot of work to get done, uh, perhaps for, for many of you experience this. this, uh, in finals week at the end of the semester, you have all these classes to study for, so what must I do? I must not study for any of them. It's too much, it's too much work. Um, or you've probably sat down at your job before and thought, in this week, I have just so much to get done that I'm going to spend Monday and Tuesday of my week figuring out how I'm going to get it done. Now I've lost time to get it done. Now I should spend Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday catching up on what I missed and then Friday and Saturday panicking about what I didn't get done. It, it, I think it produces inaction rather than action. And for example, if you feel the burden to evangelize to everyone and to be a missionary to the world as yourself well, then I think you fail to see how you could be a witness and a light of the gospel to your coworkers or to your family. Or if you feel the burden to pray for every need in the world, I think that stops you actually from praying for the people that you know need Christ that you can think of by name. So don't feel the burden to be all things to all people in that sense. Be all things to the people whom God has called you to be those things to. Your people, your place, in your context, For God's glory. It's much simpler. It's much more digestible. And not only that, it's, I think, actually what we're called to do as Christians. Just as I wouldn't try to do your job, you should not try to do my job or the job of a missionary or anything else. Now, for some of you, you might be called to that task in particular. I'm not not trying to write that off, but I'm saying if that's not your calling, you should not take on those responsibilities as though it's part of the mission of you individually. So I think that's at least how this text applies. So Christ's body is to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. That might mean something different for you than it does for someone else. All right. um, In the time we have remaining, I'd like to try to cover the rest of the verses that we haven't gotten to yet. And I say that because I'm now thinking, what am I going to cut? So (laughs) so verse 9. So he says this to them. As they're looking at him, he ascends to heaven. And they're standing there and looking at him, at go into heaven. And then uh, two angels, we're just told they're men clothed in white robes. This is obviously angels from any other context in the Old Testament. They go and they say to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Two things this could mean. On the one hand, this could be them saying, he will come again on clouds in judgment at the final bell. You could look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for an allusion to that. And so he's going to come down from the clouds in the same way that he ascended to the clouds. It's probably the majority interpretation of this text. Okay? Another interpretation, much less popular, but also possibly viable, is that he will come down from heaven in a different way than we saw him go up into heaven, but in a like character. So for, for reference to this, um, in, in 2 Timothy, which we're studying in, on Thursday nights, Um, There's a text where uh, Paul is writing Timothy, talking about the false teachers in his context. And he says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so the false teachers oppose you. And his point is not that they're building up snakes and and doing false signs against Timothy. His point is, in in the same way that Janus and Jambres, these magicians of Pharaoh, stood against Moses as an opposition force, those people also stand against you. So the phrase, just as, does not, does not have to imply a literalness. It certainly can, and shouldn't, I, we should not eliminate that from scope, and I, I plan to discuss that longer, but we will revisit that as we go through Acts. What does it mean for him to return? What does that expectation look like? Okay. So they're told he's going to go into heaven, and at some point he's going to return, and so they have this assurance that he will come back, and then what do they do? Well, they obey him. Verse 12, 13, and 14 name not just what they do in obedience, but also who's present for that obedience. And that number that's listed is likely also those who watched him ascend. So they returned to Jerusalem. This is verse 12, the mount called Olivet. It's near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room, probably the same upper room that they've been crashing in since he was persecuted and uh, crucified and that they hid in and that he gave his final discourse to them in probably that same location. They're all staying there. And who is, who is they all? Well, it's, ba- it's basically everyone except Judas. Um, and there's uh, a couple of women with them as well. Verse 14 tells us that all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Uh, remember, Luke has mentioned the women who've been traveling with Jesus kind of throughout his gospel. Here he makes another allusion to them and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And now also, Interesting, interesting addition to this number, Jesus' brothers. Now this is something that the text totally skips over and in Acts kind of gets skipped over as well because the early church understood this to be pretty patently true. But um, Jesus' brothers go from basically not knowing what to do with Jesus, uh, you see that in the Gospel of Luke, to believing in him because of the resurrection, because of all that's accomplished there. Mary goes from some kind of doubt to some more assured confidence, it seems like. And actually, Jesus' brothers, uh, the most famous of those is James, the one who writes the letter of James in the New Testament. It's not the James who Jesus picks as a disciple, because that James is killed pretty early on in the book of Acts, so he doesn't write much later than that. My point here is simple. Uh, It's the 12 minus Judas, but it's not as though they've just lost. Actually, they've gained uh, a number of folks who have now believed on Jesus on account of the resurrection. So there's this group of people who are important to keep in mind, uh, partly because they're going to be this locus from where this early church grows from. So it starts with the 12, some notable women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now the brothers of Jesus are counted in their number. And what I, all I want you to note there is, notice how small that number is. Okay? That's, um, let's say if you stretch the number of women present, you might, be ha- you might have 50 people there okay, at most. It's a small group. Um, In a couple of chapters, they're going to exponentially increase in size, and as the book of Acts makes clear, it's going to continue to grow in that kind of way. The point is uh, pretty simple, pretty uh, pretty simple to to you and to I. Um, Small remnants of faithfulness to Jesus, such as this group is, that are waiting patiently on him to act, is part of the life and breath and faithfulness of a Christian follower. You can think about Daniel and the remnant that lives in Babylon, praying for God to act to restore Israel. Are they faithless because there's only three of them that are being faithful in the Babylonian Empire? Has God abandoned his people? No, he's waiting patiently to act. Jesus has just left them. He said, you know, wait and pray. So That's what they do, and there's, you know, a couple dozen of them. It can often feel depending on what your context is at work, or at school, or at home, that because there's one, two, or three of you who believe something, or maybe at most in your co-working space, you might have five Christians. It can often feel like Christianity is dead and on the, de- and on the way dying, and that's because it's old, it's outdated, and therefore, we should get with the times and move along from Christianity. Well, Christianity has a habit of, of kind of ebbing down to the, the minimum of people of the faithful remnant, and then exploding back out into this kind of movement of the gospel. Acts kind of shows this, at least in seed form here, but the whole Bible is filled with episodes like that, where it's one person or a small few people who oppose the majority, and then God delivers those small few by his pleasure and power. There's also stories where that remnant is squelched in God's sovereignty. And we, as a a church, have no prediction of what the future exactly looks like. As these, as these followers have been promised, that God will act on their behalf according to his power and will. We trust that too. So we don't know, for instance, when we pray that God would renew Indianapolis, if Indianapolis as a city is on the rise or on the fall with Christianity. We simply don't know. But in no way does that change our obedience to Christ's marching orders. In no way should that affect how faithful or unfaithful we are to the mission. Whether God acts and intervenes and pours out his spirit is God's prerogative. What we do with the orders we've been given as Christians, as his people, is our duty. It's our responsibility. It's our burden to bear. But we do that knowing that he is often pleased to work in unlikely ways and at unlikely times on behalf of his people to rescue them. So with that, we should sing to that faithful God. Let's pray. Lord, you are God of heaven and earth, maker and sustainer of all things, and you have acted uniquely in your Son— to show us the way, the truth, and the life, a path of salvation and redemption and glory for your name. And Lord, we are thankful to be a chosen people selected by your pleasure and for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen us, saved us, redeemed us. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to be conformed to the image of your Son, we would be made like him. And we long with expectation for you to come, Lord, and save this lost and dying world by means of your spirit, by means of our witness, and by whatever means you have deemed appropriate and necessary for those events to take place. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you even today. We pray this in your name. Amen.